0: Hey, welcome to Theotivity. My name is Thaddeus and on today's podcast, we're gonna be covering a very important topic of the gospel. What is the gospel? You know, it's a word that uh, is thrown around a lot in our culture that people have a lot of different ideas from and you'll even hear from different Christians and different preachers, lots of differing and, and sometimes incompatible ideas of what the gospel means. So we're gonna talk really clearly about what the gospel is and what is not. So, let's jump on in. The Theotivity Podcast Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. So, what is the gospel? Well, simply put, that word gospel simply means good news. Good news. In fact, it's the greatest news in all of history, and it centers around what God has done to save people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so the gospel is good news and I want to get into a little bit about why it's good news but you know since I'm a Trinidadian and um, I'm gonna do it in typical Trini fashion you know in in Trinidad if you ask somebody for directions um, they'll tell you a hundred different ways of how not to get where you're going uh, for example, they might say, "Hey, how do I get to uh, this this store down, the, you know, in this area?" And they'll say, "Oh, you know, um, if you take this road and you you turn right at that coconut tree, and then you'll see um, neighbor John who has his goat tied up, and then you take another left, and then you know you see this bright yellow building." well, not there. If you're there, you're lost. Don't go there. Instead, if you go down the road even more, like two kilometers down, and then you see like this, you know, neighbor Charlie's cow tied up there, and then like, you know, a a bright pink building. No, you're still lost. So don't go there. And so we almost give directions by process of elimination. Uh, So like a good Trinity, I'm going to tell you first what the gospel is not. So what is it not? You know there's there's many voices in culture that uh say that the gospel is this and that however not every opinion on the gospel is biblically correct so before we jump into what it is we need to clarify what it's not so the firstly the gospel is not about personal health wealth and happiness right it's not about personal health wealth and happiness there's a common heresy or, or, or false teaching today called the prosperity gospel And that could be very confusing for non-Christians. You know, they hear the word gospel and hear prosperity. Oh, well, the gospel must be about prosperity. And many famous popular televangelists promote this gospel. If you watch TBN, for example, one of the most uh, popular quote-unquote Christian channels, although a lot of the material on there is not even close to Christian. Uh, In this prosperity gospel, it promises physical health and healing, material prosperity, and positive emotional well-being in this life if we only tip our hats to Jesus and usually give some money to you know, donate to the ministry, of course, right? Um, this is not the gospel. The Bible actually never promises us a carefree life of material success in this age. All of Jesus' apostles suffered and died. Even Jesus himself tells us to expect suffering and persecution in this life. He says in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. See, oftentimes God uses suffering and trials in this Christian's life to produce a character that will last. You could see Romans five 5:3 to 5 for that, or James 1, 2 to four. And the way of the Christian walk is the way of the cross. See, for example, Matthew 10:38 and Luke 9:23 which often can be the way of suffering in this life. We can sometimes believe a version of the prosperity gospel in subtler ways. You know, maybe you don't actually listen to Joel Osteen and um, Joyce Meyer or T.D. Jakes or a lot of these TBN preachers who promote this prosperity gospel. But when we come to Jesus for the purpose of self-actualization or therapy or realizing our personal goals or our benefits of this life, You know, rather than coming to Jesus for himself, we are subtly believing a prosperity gospel. People sometimes come in hopes that God will fix their marriage or provide up a a spouse or find a loving community. Come on, churches are, are, should be anyways, a great loving community, a great place to find a spouse. These things are not necessarily bad. But if these are the ultimate and primary reason that we come to Jesus, we've bought into a prosperity gospel. You see, the gospel doesn't promise us to give us these things, it promises to give us Jesus. And that's much better news. So second thing, what the gospel is not. The gospel is not about, and this is really important, the gospel is not about trying harder to do better. The second common error about the gospel is thinking that it's a list of do's and don'ts, a moral checklist of what we must do to earn salvation or to please God. You see, this view is commonly called moralism, and it's the most popular form of religion today. Actually, if you're not a Christian, you probably believe in some form of moralism. Actually, even if you are a Christian in churches, many churches today even preach a form of moralism. You see, every other religion in the world is based on some form of moralism, a set of rules or principles or values by which its adherents believe will bring them ultimate happiness, flourishing, and salvation. Uh, Basically, the fundamental assumption is that we just need to be taught what we need to do, And then we try our best in hopes that God will be pleased with us. So, for example, uh, take Islam. You've got, you know, the the, the five pillars. You've got all of these different rules and and regulations and so on, and things that you need to do to to earn favor with Allah. It's a form of moralism. You can even see that in some secular religions, so to speak, where atheists even will have a set of do's and don'ts. Their own Ten Commandments, say, right, that they've maybe made up. But it's a way that they self-justify and, and say, this is the good life and what you're supposed to do to earn whatever, you know, the, the outcome of, of it is, whatever the, the idea of salvation in that system is. Even in Buddhism, in a, a godless uh, really um, religion, Buddhism doesn't have a formal god in the, in the traditional sort of idea of it. But even in, in Buddhism, there's this path towards enlightenment that you have to do, you have to perform in order to earn it. Another most subtle form of this error is this message of um, self-help or self-actualization, which says that religion and faith actually exist just to help you be the best you. All you need is the right motivation, tips, tools, and determination with hard work. It's kind of like a Tony Robbins sort of a a message. Uh, In this narrative, Jesus becomes your life coach or just another accessory to make your life better. Some actual, you know, preachers who are really popular today, like I'd say Joel Osteen kind of falls in this category, is really more like a life coach and a motivational speaker. However, this is not the biblical gospel. See, the Bible is not primarily another religious book of do's and don'ts, giving us moral advice. To be sure, you know, there's a lot about it in, in the Bible about m- morality. But it's not its primary message to us. Jesus is not just a good life mentor and preaching is not just motivational pep talks or TED talks. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of all who has conquered sin and death and commands our undivided allegiance to his good and loving rule in our lives. Essentially, it boils down to this. The gospel is good news, not good advice. And that's a really, really important distinction. You see, because good advice leads to trying hard to follow it. But good news, you simply need to believe it. And that's freeing. So why is the gospel good news? Uh, well, I think it's for two main reasons. It answers two big questions. Firstly, what is God's plan to redeem our broken world? Right? And this is kind of like the big picture, the cosmic story, so to speak, of the gospel. And secondly, how can I be redeemed or saved? And this is where it gets personal. This is the personal story of the gospel. So we're going to cover both of these in our next section. Let's start firstly with the cosmic story of the gospel, the big picture. What is God's plan to redeem our broken world? Because we can all clearly see the world is pretty messed up, right? And the implications of the gospel are massive, involving the restoration of all of God's good creation. It's an epic story of universal significance that is too good not to be true. So the cosmic story, it can be broken into four main points or movements, if you want to call it. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We all love a good story, and there's a reason why we're drawn to compelling stories of heroism and good triumphing over evil. We see this in the success of many Hollywood superhero blockbusters, we also see it in our own lives and the stories we all tell to make sense of some of the basic questions of life. Like, where do I come from and what's my purpose in life? What has gone wrong with the world and why are things so broken? Or Um, How can we make it right? And what's the solution to our dilemma? And ultimately, what's our ultimate destiny and what hope is there to look forward to? You see, every good story has to answer these basic questions that we're all looking to find out how our lives fit into this big story of reality. And this is why every world religion, even atheism and naturalistic evolution, tells a story that attempts to answer these fundamental four questions. You can also call this a worldview. You know. Worldviews are sort of like belly buttons. Everyone has one, but not many spend too much time thinking about them or examining them. A worldview offers answers to the fundamental questions of life, questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The Bible is our source of a Christian worldview, and this is why it's important for us to see that it, what it says about these fundamental questions. The story of Christianity and the gospel is essentially the big story of reality and how we fit into it. So, What's this big story? What's the Bible's cosmic story of the gospel? We're gonna look at creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So creation, you know, God created the world in which he places humans as uh, his representatives to care for and steward his creation and live in loving relationship with him. God gave us everything we needed to flourish and live in harmony with each other. This is the story of beginnings in the Bible. And if you look at Genesis 1, It says this in verse 28 and and 31, it says, God blessed them. This is Adam and Eve, the first uh, people that God created. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was good. So creation starts off good. And that's not just... um, uh, A statement of, okay, yeah, this is good. This is a statement of God's approval of not just the functioning, uh, uh, but also the design and even the beauty of it. It was all good. Next in the big story though comes the fall. So we saw that creation kind of answers that question of where do we come from and what's our purpose? We come from God. He created us and our purpose was to glorify him and enjoy the world that he created in. And then the second question is what went wrong And this is the story of the fall. Humanity rebels against God by defying his will, desiring to define define good and evil for themselves instead. They eat of this forbidden fruit and thereby break their perfect relationship with God. And they infect all of God's good creation with sin. So we read in Genesis uh, 3, 6 and 7. So when the woman saw, this is Eve that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, for the first time ever, humanity experienced shame and nakedness because they had disobeyed God's loving word to them. So the next movement in the cosmic story of of the gospel is redemption. How can things be made right? You see, God in the fullness of time sends his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem his fallen creation by reversing the curse of sin that Adam and Eve brought on and restoring right relationships between God and humanity to those who put their faith in his finished work. And we see this in Ephesians one, verses seven to 10, it says in him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood and the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, things on heaven and things on earth. So awesome. And then the last question that this cosmic uh, story of the gospel answers is what's our ultimate destiny and hope? Like, where is this world going? And that's the story of re- restoration. That God has set a day on which he will judge the world and fully restore all his creation to perfect flourishing under his loving rule. Those who have been, who, who've trusted in Christ will be resurrected to rule and reign in his perfect eternal kingdom. You can see this in Acts 17, verse 31. It says, because uh, he has fixed, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he is appointed. And of, and of this, he's given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead, speaking of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a guarantee that God will one day judge the world in righteousness. In Revelation 5, verse 10, the last book of the Bible, it says, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That there is talking of the saints in the eternal state, that, uh, that we will reign together with God on earth. Notice this is a, a hope of a physical uh, resurrection and a physical eternal state. We're not meant to be just disembodied spirits floating and playing harps on some clouds as, you know, some uh, Far Cry, is it Far Cry? No, Far Side. <laughs> far Side comics kind of illustrate. You know, Nobel prize-winning author C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote in his book The Weight of Glory once, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by, because by it I see everything else. You see, our worldview is the light by which we see and make sense of the world that we live in. It's like a pair of lenses through which you look at the world around you and make sense of it. And how you answer these four questions, uh, the four questions of where do we come from? What's our purpose, origins? What went wrong with our world? That's um, fall, right? How, how, how can things be made right? That's what's our hope of redemption. And then what's our ultimate destiny and hope? That's our hope of restoration. That's how Christianity answers these. But how you answer these four questions will determine how you understand and live your life because that's the bigger picture, the big story that you're going to fit all of your life into. Your worldview then is like the thing by which you see everything else, like what Lewis said. The gospel's cosmic story provides us with a coherent and compelling worldview. It gives, gives us the big picture of things, the big story in which we can make sense of the world and find hope. It tells us that history is not meaningless, but rather... God has an intended purpose for all things which come to pass. It also tells us that life and human history are not endlessly repeating cycles like some Eastern religions claim, but rather that it's moving towards an amazing climax, a glorious end and goal that gives us an ultimate hope for this world. See, this cosmic story of the gospel is great news since it means that God has a plan for all of history and creation. That's great news, but how do you and I fit into this big story? Well, that's where the personal story of the gospel, of where it hits home, comes into play. How can I be redeemed or saved? You see, the gospel isn't just a big story out there, but it has massive implications for us individually as well. The gospel offers to us meaning that suffering can't take away, a satisfaction that's not based on circumstances, a freedom which doesn't destroy true love and community, an identity that doesn't crush you, a basis of hope for justice that doesn't turn you into an oppressor and relief from shame and guilt that isn't just a diversion and hope that gives you confidence to face anything, even death itself. Sounds good, right? So let's get into the personal story of the gospel. And how does it apply to you and me? And this again can be broken up into four main movements of God, sin, Christ, response. God, sin, Christ, response. But before we continue, you must know that as in every great story, The bad news has to come before the good. So make sure you stay tuned until the end. Let's take a look at each one of these points. God. Who made us and what were we created for? You know, everyone believes in God. Every culture, even in the most remote places, has some belief about God. There are myriads of religions and cults, each with their own belief about who God is. It seems like the need to relate to the divine is built into the heart of people everywhere, this is because God has created us all with what John Calvin calls the sensus divinitatus, that is, a sense of the divine. E- eternity is written on our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. The reason for this is because whether we acknowledge it or not, we all have to live in God's world, and his creation itself testifies to the creator. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 uh, say this. So Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Romans 1 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And Romans one eighteen says that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, everything that we see in nature and our own perceptions of logic, reality, beauty, and transcendence actually testify to us that there is a God and that he exists. Even the atheist perceives these things and must try to find alternative rational explanations for them. This is what the Bible calls suppressing the truth in unrighteousness in Romans 1.18. You see, without the Christian worldview, we can't even make sense of these things that we perceive like logic and reality or or, or beauty and transcendence. Where do those come from if there is no God? You see, this suppression of truth and unrighteousness can often be subconscious as we are skilled at self-deception if there's sufficient emotional motivation. Many other religions and beliefs replace the knowledge of the true God with a distorted image of a false God often made in their own image. However, when God helps us to see the beauty of the Bible's true story of reality, we no longer fear or hate the truth, but rather embrace it. Christian apologist Greg Bonson once said, it's not the end or outcome of knowledge to fear the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge to reverence him. Proverbs 1, 7, and 9, 10 attest to that. So since it's the beginning of wisdom to know and fear the Lord, we have to ask, who is God? And what does the Bible say about the true God? Who is God? The God of the Bible is the only God and creator of the universe, the triune God of the Bible is one infinite being, eternally existing in three persons of Father, Son, and Spirit, who have eternally been in perfect relationship, love, and harmony. God is perfect, good, wise, sovereign, and much more. And we are created to trust and serve the, this Lord and this God totally. Isaiah forty twenty eight says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, I am he, this is the Lord speaking, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Revelation 4, 11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. See, God is holy. And the Bible says many things about God, but one of the primary ways the Bible describes God to us is that he's holy. What does holy mean? Holy simply means set apart. Now God is totally set apart from everything and everyone else in all of creation. He's unique. He's different to us and everything else that is created. He's transcendent and infinite beyond our limitations and full comprehension. Exodus fifteen eleven says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Leviticus nineteen two says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Many people who reject God actually have a false perception of who God really is, and so what they reject is not actually the true God, but rather a God of their own imaginations. The God of the Bible is unlike any other conception of God that people have invented. No other religion has dreamt up of a God that is totally sovereign, just, merciful, loving, and good in the same way that the Bible describes. But well, what else does the Bible say about God? Well. It says that God is the judge. Because God is totally wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, righteous, and perfect, he's the only rightful judge of the universe. And God's law shows us his goodness and holiness. God's law shows us his holiness because the law is actually based on the character of God himself. The Ten Commandments, or God's law, found in Exodus 20, lay out for us God's commandments to us about, firstly, one, our relationship to God. That's Commandments 1-4. to And two, our relationship to others, commandments 5 to 10. They're God's perfect moral standards to us, which we must obey. And we're going to cover a little brief summary of the 10 commandments here. Commandments 1 to 4 about our relationship to God. So commandments 1 and 2, for example, say to not have any other gods and don't make idols or false gods to worship. That's in Exodus 20 verses 3 to 4. Because God is the creator of all things and all of his creation should glorify him and give him thanks, And because we are his creations and we are not autonomous, but rather we are accountable to God, we were created to bring God, God glory in all that we are and all that we see, all that we do and think. Commandment three is about not maligning who God is or misrepresenting his character. You can see that in Exodus 27. We should not take his name, which represents and stands for all of who he is in vain, or think less of it or dishonor it. We take the Lord's name in vain when we think, believe, talk, or act in ways that don't honor all of who God is in His perfect character and holiness. Commandment 4 is about setting apart a day to rest and remember and thank the Lord. It's about Sabbath, and that's in Exodus 20 verse 8. The purpose of God's gift of Sabbath, or this day of rest, was for people to rest from their work in order to remind them of God's gracious provision and worship Him. Sabbath rest, sorry, Sabbath rest was to show us that we are dependent on God for all things and life itself. Sabbath rest reminds us that we cannot give ourselves all that we need to flourish and we must stop to worship and thank God as the only one who can. Now notice, a lot of times people look at the commandments as dreary rules, you know, a kind of killjoy thing. But commandment four is actually for our good. It's, hey, take a rest. Remember that I am the Lord who supplies you. Commandments uh, five to 10 are about our relationship to others. So the first four were about our relationship to God. These ones are our relationship to one another. Commandment five says to honor your father and mother. Uh, it's the second table of the law shows us that God's moral perfections must also be expressed with regards to our relationship with others. It starts off with honoring the people closest to us and in positions of authority over us, our parents, just as God is our father and sovereign authority. Commandment six, don't murder uh, Exodus 20 verse 13, because God is the only author of life. mustn't take life or hate other people made in his image. Commandment seven is don't commit adultery. Uh, verse 14, because God is ever faithful to his covenant, we must not be adulterous, either in thoughts or lust or in action. See Matthew 5:27. Commandment eight, do not steal. Exodus 20 verse 15, Because God owns all things, we must not take that which does not belong to us, whether it be time, money, possessions, right? No matter how small the value, we must not steal. Commandment 9, don't misrepresent the truth. Uh, Verse 16, because God is truth, we must not lie or omit the truth. And commandment 10, don't envy what is not properly yours. Verse 17, because it is God who chooses to distribute all things as he wills, we shouldn't covet or be envious of things which are not ours. God is not merely after our external keeping of the law, but after our hearts and inner intentions. Do you notice that this last commandment is actually about, not about necessarily an action. It says don't envy, that's a, that's a disposition of the heart. You see, God's not just after your external keeping of the law, he wants your heart also. So why is knowledge of God and his law important? Because God's perfect moral law It doesn't solve our problem, it diagnoses our problem. And I want you to hear this really well. Going through the 10 commandments is not a list that you have to try to keep to earn salvation. The 10 commandments actually show us that we can't keep it. It diagnoses the problem, it doesn't solve the problem. And this is why simply trying harder to do better at following the moral law doesn't save us. So in light of all of this, a right vision of God gives us a right view of ourselves. It allows us to see that we're sinners who have broken our holy God's perfect law. How'd you do? As I was going through the Ten Commandments, how many have you broken in your lifetime? Or even just today? You know, the first command and the greatest command Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Well, that's a command that I break every day. Because... I don't think there goes a day where I perfectly love the Lord with all of my being at all times, at every minute and every second of the day. And if that's the greatest commandment, then breaking it must be the greatest sin. But what exactly is sin and why why is it such a big deal anyways? Let's take a look at the second point, sin. Sin. What is our problem and are we in trouble and why? So what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created and not believing or doing what he requires in his law. Sin is fundamentally a distorted view of God, resulting in a lack of trust in his character. This 3, 4-6 says that the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, this is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like a God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Romans to 23 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, sin is a lot more than just merely breaking of a rule. Sin is the reason for humanity's brokenness and all the evil and pain in the world. It's the breaking of a relationship and the rejection of God himself. As we saw before, the law reveals the character of God. Therefore, sin, a rebellion against God's rule and care and authority over those to whom he has given life, Sin is more than just merely missing the mark, more than just a mistake. It's an intentional shooting in the opposite direction. You see, we don't just sin because we don't know that something's wrong. We sin because it comes out of our innermost being. Jesus says that out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, etc. See, Matthew 15, 19. You see, it's not that we do bad things and therefore we're sinful. Rather, the truth is that we're sinful Therefore, we do bad things. No matter how hard we try, we can't perfectly keep God's law in our hearts. And our hearts lead us to think and act in ways that are wrong. Even people who make up their own moral law can't keep their own made-up laws perfectly. Why? Is it because they didn't know it? Think about it. Everybody has a list of things that they think lead to a good life, right? Perhaps it's, you know, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't, you know, whatever. But no one actually perfectly keeps their own list. Even if it's not from the Bible, your own made-up list you can't keep perfectly. And is it because you didn't know it? No, well you made it up. It's because we're all broken by our sinfulness at a profoundly deep level. And this is why no amount of additional religious rules or human laws can solve our sin problem. Author and pastor Greg Gilbert at this point notes, the gospel of Jesus is full of stumbling stones. And this is one of the largest. The human heart that stubbornly thinks of themselves as basically good and self-sufficient. This idea that human beings are fundamentally sinful and rebellious is not merely scandalous, it's revolting. Sin is a difficult topic to talk about. No one except a radical pessimist delights to talk about how bad things are. However, the Bible is clear about it in many places. If a pastor or Christian is afraid to explain to you the severity of sin in light of the holiness of God, they've betrayed you, friend because they love their ego more than they love God and you. No matter how difficult it is to talk about, we must understand the bad news before we can truly embrace the amazingly good news. Sin is our worship of something or someone other than the true God, because we want it our own way rather than his. In our fallen state, we want his benefits and blessings, but we don't want God himself. It's like a child telling his father, I wish you would die so that I can have your stuff and be rid of you. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus compares it to in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Matt Chandler, a pastor and author, says it this way. The point is that if we're going to orient around anything less than God, even things that look happy, shiny, and pretty, even things that God himself gives us to enjoy, or slip in even a moment's worship of something other than God, we're declaring our preference for the absence of God. So why is this a big deal? And what does it have to do with our first point? Let's take a moment to examine our own lives in light of this truth. You see, all sin is against God. If people are honest and they have broken most, if not all of God's commandments, you know, how have you done? We just went through it. God's requirement is perfection though. If someone breaks one of the commandments, they're guilty of breaking all. Why? because the law is based on the character of God and breaking the commandments therefore is a direct assault on the very character and nature of God. Just as you can't separate attacking one particular characteristic of a person without at the same time attacking the whole person, so too we can't break just one law without in essence breaking them all and offending God. Because God is infinite and eternal an offense against him is one deserving infinite and eternal punishment. This is why King David, realized his own sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Although he had wronged Uriah, killing him in battle and taking his wife, David confessed, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned in Psalm 51, verse four. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All sin is ultimately committed against a holy and righteous God and sin brings condemnation and spiritual bondage. Romans 6:16 says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one to whom you will be, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, our sin brings three main problems. Sin's penalty, power, and presence. Sin's penalty is that we fail to keep God's holy law, and we're imperfect and guilty, thus deserving the just penalty of sin. Sin's power is is that our nature is fallen and that we're slaves to sin. We're broken and unable to live rightly. We're under sin's power. We can't escape it. We can't help but sin. Like I said, it's not that we just don't know what's right and wrong. It's that we don't want to do it. And also sin's presence, finally. Sin destroys and corrupts us and the world that we live in. We are plagued by sin's presence. And I think if you look around today, you can see ample evidence of that. So this leaves us with a problem. How can sinful... Fallen people possibly stand before a perfectly holy, just, and righteous God. Because God is absolutely good and just, he must judge and punish sin. A good and perfect judge can't let wrongdoing go unpunished, or else he wouldn't be good, he'd be unjust. The final end for all those who remain in their rebellion and never repent of their sins is a place called hell. See Mark 9 verses 43 to 48 in Revelation 20.10. Hell is a place of God's active judgment against sin. It's God's justice and wrath justly poured out against sin. It's God being a good judge and actually punishing evildoers. If this is all the problem that sin brings into our lives and the world, we should be starting to wonder how awful a thing this reality is. You know, Thomas Watson once said, till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. And this is the glorious hope that we turn to next. So keep on listening. because we're gonna find out Who can set us right? Christ. If you've been listening this long, don't stop because this is the best part of the gospel message. What is the solution to our problem? And what has God done to save us? But God. The two sweetest words in the Bible. To those who understand the bad news which we just went through, those two words, but God, are some of the sweetest words that you could ever hear. Ephesians 2, 1-9 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast Romans 5 verses 6 to 10 say this for while we were yet still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person but perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die but God he shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we've been now justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. This is why those two words, but God, are the sweetest words we can ever hear. They are where the story turns and we are surprised by the amazing and lavish grace shown to us when we should have been expecting to hear about God's justice and judgment. You see, we were lost in our sins, weak and without hope, even as enemies of God. But God did not leave us there. Instead, God showed us mercy. He showed his love, his grace by sending his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to live and die and be raised again for the sake of those who would believe on him for salvation. John 3, 16 and 17 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. First John uh, 4, 9 says that in this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us. That is, God showed his love this way, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let's unpack this a little more. Jesus Christ solves the three problems our sin created. Remember those three problems. Sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. So let's take a a look at how he solves these problems. Sin's penalty. In a place of sinners, Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly and also satisfied the penalty due to us for breaking the law. Out of his great love towards sinners, God sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and die to save sinners. Jesus' death on the cross is for us. His suffering and dying is in the place of rebels like us. He's our substitute. When we see the cross, we realize it should have been us on that cross. We should have borne the full wrath of God against our sin poured out on the cross. It was our sins that Jesus Christ bore on the cross in our place. We should have been forsaken by God, but instead, Christ was forsaken. On the cross, all our sin, all the sins of those who would believe the gospel was placed on Christ Jesus. He never sinned. So he didn't have any to pay for his own sins, but he was treated like he sinned because he suffered in the place of sinners like us. Jesus pays our debt. And his perfect life is also for us. Jesus lived a perfect life so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, in order that sinners might receive the blessings earned by Christ's perfect obedience to God, Jesus perfectly keeps all of God's law, perfectly loving God and loving others. Through Jesus' perfect life, God's perfect standard of righteousness was fulfilled and he earned the merit of God's perfect righteousness on our behalf, for us. If all Christ did was to pay your debt, it would mean that our account, so to speak, would just be brought back to zero. Think about a bank account, right? That you're overdrafted and you're in debt, let's say $1,000. So you're, if someone only just pays your debt, it just brings you to zero. However, he also gives us his positive credit, his perfect righteousness, so that our account overflows, so to speak. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And this is good news. This is the good news of the great exchange. Our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness was credited to those who by faith trust in him alone for their salvation. We don't just get our debts paid, but we also get the positive righteousness of Christ credited to our account. First Timothy 1.15 says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of true and full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And finally, Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How about sin's power? The Bible says that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation are now in Christ, united to him in a profound way. See Ephesians 1.3-4, Galatians 2.20, and 2 Corinthians 5.17. They're united in his death, to sin and also united with him in his resurrection to new life. Romans 6, 4, for example, says that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 6 continues that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Therefore, the gospel also frees us from the power of sin that enslaves us. In Christ, those who believe the gospel are no longer slaves to sin, but have power through his spirit in us to put to death the old deeds and desires of our sinful nature. What about sin's presence? Those who are united to Christ through faith will rise again on the last day, just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So now, death no longer has the final say. The grave has lost its power and death has lost its, sin, its sting. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five to 57 says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of, of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, nothing can condemn or separate those who trust in him from the love of God. Romans 8 says this: Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed indeed interceding for us, he's pleading for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It goes on to say, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, since we who believe in him are united to him in his death to sin, Galatians 2.20 again said that we've been crucified with him, right? We are freed from the power of sin and progressively being freed from the presence of sin in our lives. Colossians 3 says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is a call to sanctification or growth in holiness. Because Jesus' resurrection is ours, we will one day be raised to resurrection life, freed forever from the presence of sin, to be together with him for eternity when Jesus brings the final and complete restoration of all the brokenness in the world. Now that's a glorious hope. But it's not just for the future. Are we also being progressively freed from the presence of sin today as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and progress in sanctification, or that's just a a big word meaning growth in holy living? What does Jesus' death accomplish on the cross, though? You know, a lot of times people struggle with what does the death of some random Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross have anything to do with me? You know, there's four different ways that the Bible talks about what Christ's death accomplishes for us that we're gonna cover here. The first one is reconciliation. That we were separated, but Jesus brought us near and restored us to a right relationship with God. Our sin brought spiritual alienation or separation from God. We have a broken relationship with God because of our sin. And similarly to when we hurt other people, it separates us from them and breaks down the relationship. However, God being rich in mercy absorbed in himself the hurt of our sin and reconciled us to himself by sending Christ. You can see Romans five, eight to eleven, second Corinthians five, eighteen to twenty, Ephesians two, fourteen to sixteen, and Colossians one, twenty one to twenty three. Secondly, the cross accomplishes propitiation, which is a big word, but it simply means that we were under God's wrath, but Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved. Because God is holy and good, he must punish sin. Just as it is right for us to feel angry at injustices and evils in our own world, it's wholly right for God to feel indignation against evil, especially because all sin is ultimately against him. However, instead of us bearing the penalty and and the just wrath of our sins that we deserve, Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And therefore, God is both just in punishing sin and able to be merciful in granting us pardon. See, for example, Romans three twenty-three to twenty-five, Hebrews two seventeen, and First John two one and two and four and ten. Thirdly, the cross accomplishes redemption; that we were enslaved to sin, but Jesus set us free from our bondage to sin. Jesus Himself said that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. See John eight thirty-four. We are all enslaved to sin, serving it as a cruel master, and, and, and we're unable to free ourselves from the grip of sin. And just like slaves, we need someone to purchase our freedom. Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom, or in other words, a price paid to set slaves free from many. That's in Mark 10, 45. His blood poured out on the cross was the price of our freedom to redeem us from the curse of the law and set us free to serve him. See Galatians 3, 13 and 4, 4 to 5, Titus 2, 14 and Colossians 1, 14. And fourthly this, Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes justification, that we were condemned, but Jesus took the punishment of my sins and gave me his righteousness. It's the law court analogy, that we were judged guilty and he takes our place in paying our fine or serving our sentence or basically taking our punishment. Because of our sins, we stand guilty and condemned before the holy judges of the universe. We should have been made to pay the price for the sins that we committed. However, Jesus pays it on our behalf. And he gives us the reward of his righteousness and the perfect life that he deserved. This is called the great exchange that we talked about. Christ takes my sin on the cross and I get his perfect righteousness credited to me. See, for example, Romans 3:28, 4:25, 5.1-9, Galatians 2, 16-17, 2 Corinthians 5:21, and Titus 3, 4-7. We've seen from these Uh, three points so far, that God is holy, that we are sinful and unable to save ourselves, but God has given us the gracious gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So, now what? What do we do with all this good news? Response. What do I need to do to be saved? So, here's where the rubber hits the road. It gets real now. What do you need to do to be saved? Well, firstly, and this is a point that a lot of gospel preachers even forget the call to count the cost. Although salvation is offered as a free gift, Jesus Christ's call to follow, uh, uh, to follow him comes at a cost. It means denying yourself, following him as your lord and master. It may involve losing many things that, for the sake of Christ. Some have lost jobs, money, relationships, or respect from others as a result of their faith in Christ. However, in light of what we've seen so far, God is holy, we are sinful, Christ is an amazing savior, the only appropriate response is to give Christ our all because he gave us his all. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, we have to count the costs. Jesus tells us to count the cost of being his disciple and following him. By doing so, we're saying that our very life is no longer our own. We instead belong fully to Christ. We recognize that Christ is worth the cost because he is the treasure beyond all comparison. There's no other way to receive Christ than as Lord and master of your whole life. Jesus doesn't call for half-hearted disciples, but rather sold out followers and recipients of amazingly lavish love and grace. The apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, "Or oh, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body." In Galatians 2:20, he had said that we were crucified with Christ and that the life that we now live in the flesh we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Disciples of Jesus Christ are all in or than not in at all. The cost of following Christ in this world may be very high, but the reward for doing so in the life to come will be worth it. Jesus himself promises that those who follow him and lose in this life for his sake will be repaid both in this life and at the resurrection of the just in the life to come. See Mark 10:30 and Luke 18 uh, for references for that. Jesus is also king and he calls us to submit to his reign. At the beginning of his ministry, Matthew 4.1 records that from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus is a sovereign king of the universe who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. See 2 Timothy 4.1. To follow him is to pledge total allegiance and submission to his rule and reign. It is to spend your whole life in service to his kingdom and his goals. It is to declare to others that they must also joyfully submit to his loving and good Rule as king. It means that in all things must be subjected to Christ, Philippians 3, 21, including the nations, cultures, education, law, politics, government, entertainment, arts, business, family, church, and all the other spheres of society. Jesus' reign is total, and he's coming back to claim his rightful inheritance. That's the gospel that we proclaim. It's a gospel of a kingdom, and we get to be in that kingdom. And the amazing thing is that we get to rule and reign together with our amazing King. You see, following Christ may cost you everything in this life, but you'll gain Christ. And therefore, you'll gain everything in the end. 2 Corinthians 4 says that for this light and momentary suffering or affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And Philippians 3 says that whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Perhaps at this point, you're saying to yourself, okay, so I get that falling Christ might cost me everything in this world. But because of all that he's done for me, I see that he's the treasure that's worth giving up everything to have. What's next? What do I do? Well, repent and believe. The Bible sums up what our response to the gospel should be in two words, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says in Mark 1.15. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from sin. It's a turning away. Repentance at its most basic level means to change your mind. But repentance involves not just a change of mind, but a change of heart. And as a result, the direction of our entire lives. First, repentance involves seeing the penalty and tyranny of sin and turning away from looking to other things and other false gods to save us and give us life and ultimate satisfaction. Second, repentance involves acknowledging that we cannot lift a finger to solve the problem our sin created. We're not the solution to our problem. We are the source of it. Penalty, power, and presence. We can't solve those problems. Thereby, it causes us to stop trusting in our own good works to save us. You see, we turn away from going our own sinful way, and we now go Jesus's way, right? But we also turn away from trusting in our good works. So repentance is not just turning away from sin, but it's also turning away from trusting in your own good works to merit salvation. Secondly, faith. So if repentance is turning away from sin, faith is turning to God. In the same way, faith is not some you know, vague feeling that we have. It's, it's putting our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross to save us from the judgment of God. Before, you may have thought that your own morality could have made you right with God. You know, perhaps if you had helped enough gran- grannies cross, cross the street, God would be pleased with you. Or that God would overlook your sin, you know, that he would just kind of turn a blind eye. But now you see the truth of the gospel. And now you see that the death of Christ is your only hope of forgiveness. You know that the resurrection of Christ is the only hope for your life beyond the grave. And so you place all of your trust, you put all of your eggs in that basket, in his promise that he will not turn away anyone who comes to him, John 6:37. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, whoever, I will never cast out. Faith is biblically defined as reliance or trust, which is grounded on the rock solid truths of God's promises to us is being fully convinced that God is able and willing to do what he promised. Romans 4 says this, No unbelief made him waver, talking about Abraham, concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, it's okay. It's good. It's right for us to trust to put our faith in God's promise because he follows through. Faith is turning to God. This is the primary difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other religion puts their faith or trust in what they can do to reach God, to earn salvation. Christianity, though, puts its trust in what God has done to reach us and give us salvation. Every other religion says, do, do this, do that, do this, do that. Christianity, though, says, done. Other religions say, do this and live. Christianity, God says, I've done this so that you can live. That's the big difference. So what's your next steps? Perhaps you've heard this and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. You realize I can't save myself. I can't do enough good works. I need to fall totally and wholly on Jesus Christ. Well, if you've done that, you've got to come and tell someone. If you need to tell me, you can uh, email me through the website. I'd love to hear if this podcast, if this audio or if the, the articles on the website have helped you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, secondly, go go talk to a Christian friend or find a local church to talk to some Christians because for what's next, you need to be in the fellowship and community and encouragement of a group of believers and pastors and leaders to help you grow in your faith. So what we're called to next as we put our faith in Christ is to rise and be baptized. Jesus commands that, those who repent of their sins and put their trust in Him are to be baptized as an outward symbol and witness of their faith in Him. See Mark 16, 16 and Acts 2, 38. Baptism is not something advanced for later on in life, but rather something basic to be now because of its blessings to those in Christ. You see, baptism is a sign of the reality that we're not only saved individually, but also into a corporate body, the church. See 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. Is an outward sign of the obedience and reality of the gospel. Going under the water to represent being united in Christ's death to sin and coming back up out of it represents our union with him in his resurrection to new life. It confirms to us the reality of what has happened spiritually. You see, God knows that we're not just spiritual beings floating in clouds. We have physical bodies. So it matters that we physically also experience these signs and symbols of salvation. So don't put it off. Find a biblical church to get connected with and get baptized. And secondly, growing in, f- in faith in, in a community. Your Christian journey can be filled with many difficulties and struggles. Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. See Matthew 7, 13 to 14, but we can't walk it alone. When you were saved, you were adopted into God's family, into this church. You became a son or a daughter of the most high God. And as a result, the Christian life is meant to be lived in community with your brothers and sisters, helping to encourage each other, to love one another, to keep one another accountable and to minister to one another. This is why it's important for you to find a good local church where you can grow and be encouraged in your walk of faith. So find a church. Look for a church specifically that preaches through the Bible, that opens it up, reads it, and clearly explains what it means and that you can follow along with and see for yourself that this this pastor or whoever it is, not just trying to pull a sheet over my eyes. It's actually delivering to me what the word clearly says and how it applies to my life. So find a church in your area that preaches God's Word unapologetically, clearly, boldly, and a community that can surround you to help you grow and be discipled and mentored, and just plug in. Get your hands dirty, start serving. Start plugging into a small group and a community to, to know other Christians and be encouraged by them and observe their way of life, especially if they're mature Christians that you can know learn from them. I hope that this podcast episode has been helpful to you. If you've come to faith through this podcast, please send me an email and let me know. Or if you've used this to share the gospel with one of your friends or family members or coworkers or whoever, any loved one, um, please also let me know. I love hearing these stories. It's so encouraging to hear how the gospel is going out. For more uh, articles and resources and so on to help you grow in your faith, check out Theotivity.com. And until next episode, Soli Deo glory. To God alone be the glory. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.